I'm sure many of you have heard the joke about the humble janitor. There are many versions, but this is the one that I like the most. Here it goes like this. Walking into an empty sanctuary, a rabbi was suddenly possessed by a wave of mystical rapture and threw himself onto the ground before the ark, proclaiming, God, I'm nothing. Seeing the rabbi in such a state, the cantor of the synagogue felt profoundly moved, and he too had similar emotions, and so he threw himself also before the ark and said, God, I'm nothing. Then way in the back of the synagogue, the janitor throws himself onto the ground and shouts out loud, God, I'm nothing too. Whereupon the rabbi turns to the cantor in the front of the synagogue and says, look who thinks he's nothing. I've got nothing on my mind. I've got nothing on my mind because in this week's Torah portion, in the weekly wisdom, Parshat Shlach Lecha, sending out of the spies, we have the appearance of the word nothing or zero appearing in the Bible in this form for the one and only time. But let me paint a scene for you first, okay? Here's the scene. The Israelites are moving through the Sinai Desert. They finally have begun the journey towards the Promised Land. They request, or are commanded, our Bar Mitzvah Max is gonna talk about that difference tomorrow, requesting or being commanded to send scouts out to, to bring back some reconnaissance, some, some reconnoiting of the land. They wanna know what the land is all about. There's a scout for each tribe, one for each tribe. So 12 scouts are going to be sent out. One mission though, 12 scouts, one mission. They come back 40 days later, they have a cluster of fruit and a few observations to share with Moses, Aaron, and the people. Of the 12 scouts, 10, 10 of the 12, admit that the land is good. It's very good. And though the land is indeed a land that is flowing with milk and honey, big fruit, all of that good stuff, that, that, that's not enough, they say. It's true, they say, the land is incredible, but we can't. We just can't conquer them. They're too big. Literally, the fruit are too big and the people are too big. They're grande, muy grande, giants. <laughs> we can't win. And though there are two heroic figures, Kalev or Caleb and Yehoshua or Joshua, who stand strong and unflinching in this maelstrom of pessimism and we can't, they try gallantly to reassure the people that the good life awaits them if they would only believe. In the end, the damage is done and the people fly into a frenzy of fear, a paroxysm of paranoia and panic. They cry the entire night. A night that the rabbis say would become historically set night for crying. That entire night, they wished to return to Egypt, or at least to die in the desert, rather than risk dying in the land. 
On the face of it, this story is a clear story of fear. But it's also a story about stories. It's a story about how we tell stories about knowing the truth of another, te another person's testimony, how we maintain our own sense of truth even as someone else assails it with their own version. It's about failed leadership and about the capacity to be a minority voice of calm and courage even when the entire world, the entire world is shouting and spouting lies, stirring painful panic and anxiety. And this incredible story I want everyone here to know. If anyone ever asked you, Judaism 101, what was it? What was it? What was the event, the major event in the Bible that, as it were, the judgment of that generation is sealed upon? There are many moments. There's the golden calf. You'd say, well, that's a moment of deep rebellion. No. Was it complaining that there wasn't enough food, meat? No. Was it that there wasn't water? No. Was it hitting a rock? No. This moment, this story of failed leadership and of powerful minority voices against ten, this is the story that keeps the Israelites out of the land of Israel. This story. And the Ramban, Achmanvi says, the entire story hinges on one word. One word. And here it is. Quoting the verses, we came to the Lord, we came to the land that you sent us. It does indeed flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, Ephes, they continue. The people who inhabit the country are powerful, and cities are fortified, very large. There are Anakites and giants and Amalekites. The Ramban points out that the pivot of the entire story is on the word however, which is the word Ephes. Can everybody say that word? Ephes. One more time. Ephes. however, is its translation. It means zero, nothing. Ephes. It's the only appearance in the Torah in this form. They've told a story of truth. They came to the land. It was beautiful. There was land of milk and honey, and there are these big graves that are going to forever be on Kedem or whatever, Manashevitz. There's always going to be those grapes, and the guys who are carrying the grapes, right? It's a great land. However, they say, Ephes, ki az ha'am, the nation, they're too strong, Ephes. This Ephes, this nothing, this zilch, this zero, undercuts their own beautific report, in which they have essentially confirmed the goodness of the land. And it leads to two usages of the word Ephes, two meanings of it here. The word Ephes here is, it's to undercut. But the traditional understanding of the sin of the spies, and follow me here, is that they were sent into the land to bring back a report. And many of the commentators say that the sin is that they brought back not a report, but an interpretation. They brought back an interpretation, and really the sin was that they interpreted the facts instead of just giving the facts. That's a traditional reading of this moment. The FS means what in this? It means FS, here's my interpretation. And that's not good. But here's where Aviva Zornberg takes us in a completely different direction. She says that the word zero here, FS, 
It doesn't mean necessarily to undercut what came before. Yeah, the land was great, and here's why it's not. She says, Ephes here plays the role. What is the sin of the scouts? Ephes is the illusion and the objective giving over of the facts as if they are facts without subjectivity. She turns the tables on the head. She says, Ephes here doesn't mean that which came before isn't true. Ephes is zero means here's the facts. I've seen grapes. I've seen flowing rivers of honey. It's all beautiful. And actually, they're too strong for us. She says, it's not that they interpreted the facts. It's that they gave over the, the interpretation as if it was a fact. They gave over the story, the subjectivity, the intersubjective nature of how we interpret reality as if it was just as coldly scientific and as objective as bringing back some grapes. My son, Bear, I always know when he's about to tell me something that I completely don't believe. <laughs> Actually, Ava, <laughs> the moon is really made of cheese. What he means is, as my friend Rabbi Adam Kliegfeld says, factually. You get that? I'm about to give you an interpretation. I'm about to give you something entirely idiosyncratic, totally internal, my own experience, my own opinion. And I give it as if it's actual, it's factual. Here's the truth with a capital T. Zornberg, Aviva Zornberg says, FS here zero means what I just told you was clearly true, and now get this, zero. Meaning, here's the, the core of it, here's the root of it, FS, really, factually. The sin of the scouts is not that they interpreted the data, but that they didn't realize that they were interpreting the data. The danger. The danger of living in a world where you think something is factually true when it's really just a really interesting opinion. Where you can say, FS, it's really true that that painting is better than the other one. It's really true that global warming is an opinion. Where facts or opinions are paraded as facts and we lose that sense of the deep coloring that we bring to every moment. The lack of transparency. How many people have had relationship arguments where the two of you are arguing about something and it's about facts? <laughs> and neither one of you is willing to say, well, this is just the way I feel, or this is just the way I see things. We have seminaries in the Jewish world that place such an important emphasis on knowing the facts, knowing the history, knowing the science, knowing who wrote which text when. And when they ask you what's the meaning of it, there's a bias against meaning. We have to have conferences called the meaning of meaning. <laughs> because somehow there's something less than, if I acknowledge it, essentially, this is how I see it. It might not be the way that you see it. The FS here is the FS of, there are no other opinions. We are the 10 scouts, we have seen the land, of course, everyone agrees, including the two other ones, that it is a great land. It's full of this beautiful, bounteous fertility. And FS, nobody else has any opinion. It's too 
It's scary. And that's the fact check. FS, zilch, nothing. How many people here go online and they're in a conversation with someone and they say, I am HO. They write that in their email or in their text. They say, in my humble opinion. In that moment, I'm thinking to myself, not humble and not an opinion. <laughs> I spent six months with my wife working on reducing the number of questions that we ask our sons, which are really commands couched in a question form. Will you please brush your teeth? What is that? <laughs> Go brush your teeth. Will you please take out the garbage? Take out the garbage, please. When we confuse and belittle, deny subjectivity, denying subjectivity leads to even greater consequences Aviva Zornberg quotes the French analyst Jacques Lacan, who says, Le non du erran, the undeceived error. The greatest illusion may be the pretension to total lucidity. The pretension to total lucidity. I love that. The pretension to total lucidity closes off the possibility of possibilities the phrase that Jonathan Lear uses. The imagination closes down. Oh, you're presenting me with facts? Oh, okay. When we deny our own interpretive vehicle, the importance of it, how it weighs in, we're in a dangerous place. Subjectivity. the way that we look at the world. There's an entire denial of the inner life, a denial of how much interpretation goes into co-creating reality. At the moment that we give that away, we also disempower ourselves, ironically, in seeking to foist our own opinion as truth, in seeking to say, this nothing is a nothing that denies you. This nothing is a nothing that seeks to empower. We lose the land. That's the sin of the spies. I want to bless you all this morning, this evening, and bless me back. There is in Ephesus, there is a zero, right? I was thinking about, imagine that zero right there in the middle of the Torah. A zero before a one will diminish it. A zero after a one will increase it, will make it greater. There are zeros, there are nothings, as it were, in the world that make us greater. There are faulty nothings that masquerade as humility, that use the bravado of fact to hide subjectivity. Those are the Ephesus, the Ephes, that efface us. Those are the Ephesus, the zeros, that make us less than and not fully who we are. So tonight and tomorrow and this week, I want to charge all of you that when you hear yourself saying something as if it were fact, remember the word Ephes. Remember the big zero in the Torah that kept us from the land. 
Remember to ask yourself the question, is it okay if I have an opinion here without having to masquerade it as the truth? I'm gonna say, of course it is. Because ultimately, we're all nothing. Look who thinks they're nothing. 